Welcome back, everybody. Episode number 36 of the Roses and Render podcast. Today, continuing our discussion of the beginning of infinity with my charming co-host, Joseph Stanford. And today we'll be covering chapter six and chapter seven. Chapter six is on the jump to universality and chapter seven, the uh, topic is the creation or an expression of the idea of artificial creativity. Um, two important, I, I would say two important chapters for the book. And I would say this is my second read through of the book appear more important on the second read through now that I have contacts from the remainder of the book. But Joe, before we get into a detailed discussion, um, give me kind of your, your high level view of the book so far. You know, how is it shaping up in your head and you know, what are your ideas on it on it so far? You're, what is this about? We're about halfway through, maybe just a little bit less through the book. What's your thoughts sure. so far? Uh, yeah, so I think this is gonna be our best chapter review yet. I, I can feel that because these are some exciting chapters. Yeah. Um, number six and seven, they're, they're, they're big. They have big practical applications. Yeah. Um, overall, the book, it's, it's, it's really starting to shape up. It's really starting to uh, take form. Um, I, I think that it's an important read because it, it really is starting to reshape the basis of my own reasoning and my own thought. And I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Yeah, I second all of that as well. I couldn't agree more. Um, definitely a book that you can tell from the first page feels important. I mean, really, before you even know what the book is about, it, it has a, a, a certain kind of gravity to it. Um, and uh, anybody who's anybody looking for a good book to read, go out and check it out. Beginning Infinity, author David Deutsch. Um, before we hop in, as always, a, a bit of a week review for for or from Joe, depending on how you look at it. Uh, any other highlights you want to share with us before we jump into number six uh yeah yeah um did a little bit of traveling this week i'm currently in oceanside california as you can tell by the scene behind me in fact you can see the ocean over there somewhere Beautiful. to prove that i'm in oceanside this is one of those um, same backgrounds this is actually actually on the site joe move around yeah. let me see if it lags when you move around yeah if it like blurs around my head if i get like a halo uh, okay. well, the zoom backgrounds are getting pretty good i will say that they are getting good um, no, and just traveling around, it's, it's real interesting to see how different states treat these mask rules and mm. everything differently. Right. I know I was in Arizona not too long ago where there's still signs posted on the buildings themselves in every business that say that masks are required upon entry, but no one enforces it. It's only the staff that, uh, abides by those rules. And then you have the other extreme, which is mm. like Oregon, for example, Portland, where everywhere has those signs and the signs are enforced right mm. so like and then i think california from what i tell so far i haven't been here very long but it seems like kind of a happy medium like there's not a lot of people walking around outside with masks uh i got yelled at for not wearing one i'm on a coffee shop today but uh all in all it's kind of like in between so okay. it's a it's good to see things starting to to move back and swap back sure um yeah how, how's your week been? Pretty good week. Pretty good week. I um, spent most of it just thinking about these chapters today, actually, and uh, was really excited to talk about these chapters. And I don't know if anybody is on our Twitter, uh, we I put it out a video um, about an author named Rene Girard, who I've talked about maybe a handful of times on the podcast. Um, He's written a number of books, uh, but the one that I've read, and I, I think is kind of regarded as being the magnum opus, if you will, of, of his writing. It's a book called Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. Um, that is a book, I'm, I'm giving our listeners a bit, of a, a bit of a prelude into what I think will come out in maybe the next three months. So quite a, a ways away, but um, I think ideas in that book are going to tie into themes that we're actually talking about now, with the beginning of infinity. And so anybody looking for good books to read, I would say that those two are, would be high on my list. Um, but then we're talking about now the beginning, the beginning of infinity and then the second book, um, things hidden since the foundation of the world. And, um, and so I, I kind of was trying to organize my ideas around those books today, um, or rather during the week. And, uh, but besides that, a pretty quiet, a pretty quiet week, not, not much else went on in our quiet neck of the woods. So in any event, without further ado, let's jump into it. Let's jump into chapter number six, the jump 
the universality. So give us an overview of the chapter. And then it'd be fun, I think, for each of us to kind of give our highlights of the chapter and what we thought of it um, as kind of an, as, as, as a, as a standalone piece, if you will, from the rest of the book. Sure. Um, so the jump to universality, um, he starts talking about universality in the context of kind of how you can use some tools, like tools such as numeric systems or alphabets or even computers and how you can use those tools that in a universal way, meaning that instead of just having one very specific task that these things do, like alphabet does, like maybe instead of like he used the example of like tallying, like we first started off by tallying things. And this was useful for counting sheep, counting goats, counting like days, that type of thing. But eventually you experience limitations with that system because I mean, what happens when you go like above 40, you just have like 40 lines drawn on a wall or something and you can't really count them at an eye's glance. So that's when the Romans came up with the Roman numerals, you know, the I's and the V's and the C's and the M's and, they were able to represent larger numbers in an easier way to see it. But even that uh, numeric system had its limitations because you couldn't do any real meaningful arithmetic with the Roman numerals. Like if you start trying to multiply Roman numerals, it gets like a little hairy, a little tricky. And that's when I think it was like, I don't know, the Arab Arabs or the Greeks came up with essentially what is our modern day number system, which is more universal in the sense that a wide range of numbers can be uh, represented and a wide range of numbers can be, you know, arithmically manipulated. Like you can do multiplication, you can talk about real large numbers. Um, he extends that example from numerals to uh, alphabets, and he was saying that it's better to have an al uh, alphabetic system or a phonetic system where there's a few sounds that can represent everything instead of it just being super overly complicated with like millions of different sounds and words because that's not universal. It's hard to, it's very specific to each individual thing. Um, and, and I thought that was a, that, that's a really unique concept, this concept of universality and just the amount of foresight and like, the amount of importance that someone has to place on abstract thinking in order to develop a system like this and how, when you do that, it really creates this infinity situation where you can right. do anything. And just one last example was, uh, he was talking about like back in the day when they were going to reproduce books or something like that, they would have these like pages of just embossed letters that, individual to each page so if you wanted to reproduce a page real quick you would have to make this embossed stencil that you would stamp down on a page and you have to do that for every page of the book but once um the typewriter was invented like now you have the universality where you can type any keys just as fast and you can type through things and yeah it was i that's pretty much what this chapter the takeaways for me were about was just understanding this concept of universality getting these examples and um, I'm sure it's it's setting a good foundation for what's what's to come. It feels like. How about how about you? I really like that summary, and I wanted to give. I I, I uh, marked off the last page of this chapter. I was going to give uh, his definition for the concept of a jump to universality: the tendency of gradually improving systems to undergo a sudden large increase in functionality becoming universal in some domain. And I like the, the example of an alphabet. So let's stick with that, let's stick with that example for a while. People can understand you know, why that's such an important idea with universality. The idea with an alphabet is that you standardize the symbols that in a sense represent some kind of sound. And so in the English alphabet, we have A, B, C, D all the way through Z. And the idea is that when we have a new word or a new idea that we want to talk about or to you know, encode in some way, we don't invent new letters. We just take the already existing letters and rearrange them in a unique way. And that system of 26 letters can in a sense be used to represent any word and can in fact encode a fair, about, a fair amount of information in that word because you would have at least a rough idea of how to sound it out 
there are obvious examples where that's not true. Not every letter in the English language makes the same sound every single time. But, uh, but generally, you can sound out a word and now you know how to pronounce it. So when you encounter somebody for the first time and they show you this new word you've never seen before, you can, you can say that word to them through some rough fashion and they can help you figure out, you know, maybe if it's not quite how you say it, they, they, they probably know about what you're trying to say. And um, anyways, it's a nice idea that rather than having to have, so he gives the example prior to alphabets of everything being done pictorially. And so you had the problem of every time somebody thought of a new ID, you had to have a new symbol that no one had ever seen right. before, no one knew what it was. Um, alphabets begin to address that problem by at least giving you an idea of how to sound the word out. And also the idea of, you're getting to the idea of the printing press earlier. Now, instead of having to create a brand new set of characters for every page you wanna reproduce, you know that as long as you have the 26 letters of the alphabet, whatever any book somebody brings you, you'll be able to print out. It's all the same symbols. It's just the arrangement that is different. Um, I wanted to talk about a topic that on first read through didn't seem that important to me, but on a second read through does seem important to me and much more mm -hmm. important. And that is the concept of error correction. Um, right. So the idea with error correction is that if you have, well, define all these in, in a moment and kind of get the, the idea out and then we'll go back and explain it better. The idea that a part of any system needs to encompass a way to correct for errors, that errors are inevitable and that if you don't have a system that corrects for errors, eventually that system will become useless over time as the errors accumulate. So you need some way of, of getting rid of errors as your system is, is progressing. And he gives some interesting examples of how this would work. But I wanted to kind of preface that discussion with the idea that, at least it seems to me, the value of a digital system versus an analog system is that you turn a measuring problem into a counting problem. And that through that, mm -hmm. it allows you to address errors as they accumulate. Um, and that because of that need for error correction, all universal systems embody some kind of digital system at their heart. And so what gives computers their power and why a, a computer is, can be a universal computer is because they have a way of correcting errors as the computer is working through uh, some kind of computation, uh, whereas analog computer is, is limited in that ability uh, to do so. And so I, that was a really important idea to me. And um, the well, other when, when, when we're talking about analog and yeah. digital, yeah. Um, and I think he talks about this in chapter seven. He talks about, because uh, I've always struggled with the difference between analog and digital and what that means. Mm -hmm. And in this context, I think a, a good example that he gave was, and I'm sure I'm going to mess up his example, but it was, he was talking about when you're, when you're counting the number of goats in a herd or something, like if you were to do it digitally, you would just be counting one, two, three, four. But if you were to do it analog, it would be like you were using a measuring tape to measure right. like the dimensions of the, of the herd. Yes. And then, inherent to those measurements you're going to get like it, it, there's going to be errors like you said and that's the importance of error correction like sometimes you'll measure it to be 20 feet across sometimes you'll measure it to be 20 and a half feet across right. and over time those errors will add up add up and add up where in the case of just counting one by one like yeah. one is always going to be one it's not going to be 1.1 it's not going to be 1.3 it's gonna, it's always going to be one right so I, I just wanted to make that distinction um, yeah, it's a good distinction. And you see from that example why there is an inherent limitation. Say that if you can only count the measurement of the sheep up to that first decimal, and after you've measured 10 sheep, you now are left mm -hmm. wondering, is it 21, 20, or 19? It could be any of those three numbers. Whereas if you're counting digitally, it would be, well, you counted 20 sheep, therefore it's 20 sheep. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's a good example. And if, like you're saying, the idea of counting sheep by measuring their lengths versus, you know, counting them as discrete units. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I think, you know, as engineers, we have an appreciation for this too, because it leads to things like standardization. You can standardize a measurement. You tell somebody the airplane's 20 feet long, it's 21 foot units. There's no ambiguity about, you know, how long it is. Um, and so it allows communicating plans and this idea of uh, standardizing units gives you a universality uh, that would be impossible in a purely analog system, but this also makes, you know, we, we appreciate this on a day-to-day on -day level because we may not realize it, but oftentimes when we're measuring something, 
really counting something. When you're measuring inches, you're really you're you're, you're counting inches, and so it lends itself to universality in that way as well. And what 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 is the importance of universality? Why is it important? Um, why why is it necessary for improving our knowledge? Sure. So I think this is a really good question. I think in terms of the computer answer, the idea of having one computer platform that through adding on memory to a digital system can gradually improve accuracy indefinitely um, means that it can be used to, to simulate physical systems to ever increasing accuracy and that mm -hmm. we can continuously expand our ability to, to um, carry out complex uh, calculations to an ever higher degree. Um, and that we can use that same platform to, in a sense, calculate or simulate anything that it's not limited to um, say, uh, it's not limited by the, by the inaccuracy of an analog system. The other benefit too of an alphabet is that it does allow you to, um, to spread knowledge quicker through communication in the sense that once you have an alphabet in place and everybody agrees on the alphabet, um, it allows you to send the same symbols to somebody else without having to worry about a new symbol coming your way. And right. I would say that, you know, in our day and age now where we do everything through communicating through digital systems, it's the same thing. As long as my computer and your computer agree with how to interpret binary code, we can send emails back and forth. Um, but ultimately with something like DNA, the value of universality is the idea that with this simple system, it can combine itself in all sorts of ways that lead to things like life and evolution um, beyond, you know, some limited domain. It allows it to expand beyond, you know, the same DNA that led to bacteria can lead to human life. And even though it's right, the same right. system at its core, the universality and the way that it can combine and reshape itself means that there's no limit um, to the ways it can recombine itself leading to all sorts of new life forms. Yeah. And that was, that was probably one of the best examples of universality that he used was the DNA um, sequence and how, even though the DNA sequence itself is really old and really ar archaic, quote unquote, um, I mean, like you could code bacteria with it, but using that same system, it was such a efficient alphabet, such a universal alphabet that from that system, you were able to encode, I mean, humans, elephants, tigers, everything. Right. And then he, he got on to the other part too about humans being universal explainers that I thought was yeah. an interesting idea that basically through our process of conjecture and criticism, we can continuously create and challenge ideas to lead to ever improving explanations for, you know, whatever scientific, you know, questionnaires are searching for really whatever question you're searching for that by continuously, you know, there's, there's no limit on our ability to think of new ideas. We're always thinking, we're always, always thinking of something new. And so as long as we put those ideas to criticism, it allows us to not just create ideas in general, but to create better ideas by improving on the idea that we had in the first place. That it's, it's, it's the, and that it would be the title of the book, Game of Infinity. But because of our ability to, in, in a sense, be creative, which is more the, the concept or the subject of chapter seven, um, there's, there's no limit on what we can ultimately understand. We can always press further and further and further uh, into, you know, the, the knowledge horizon. Yeah. Yeah. He was talking about when DNA can encode certain species, like it can encode like a bird or a beaver or something like that, but it also consequentially encodes how the, the bird creates a nest, like how right. the beaver creates a dam. So it's, it's a second layer of creation that goes underneath it. And yeah, beavers and birds can do that type of stuff. But like you said, and I had that highlighted, people are the universal explainers. Like there's something special about people right. in the sense that they have a little bit extra universality. Um, like he was saying that computers can never truly be universal because you still need people to do the maintenance to them and a lot of the work. But like you said, there's something unique about humans in particular that makes them more universal than just about anything out there. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was, it was interesting too, that, um, 
this i this idea with universality this idea of of people it wasn't the the creation of an abstract thing like a universal language or a universal number system at its time wasn't even appreciated by the people that made it that they didn't mm-hmm. understand why it was important um which i think is funny too because you know it's now it would, it's hard to imagine a world where we don't have a number system that can represent any number through some you know small set of characters that that's you know clearly a breakthrough to us we use it every day but to the people at the time that made it it mean it, it almost like fell if i remember from the book correctly it came into existence and was like rarely used for a while that no one really knew that, that it was important and so yeah. you know that always it, that's funny to me because um there was there was this discovery of this and very impressive and powerful system and it just went in a sense completely unnoticed and so you know while we do think of people as having this ability to understand things we're not born with we're not born with an appreciation necessarily for it or if we are maybe the the appreciation is very limited because there are all these historical examples where we were presented with this really good thing and it wasn't apparent to us why we should care that it was universally applied or even what that would mean what would it mean for today yeah person? i i think the example he gave maybe this is a different one than what you're referring to was of how archimedes was doing some right some some evaluation where he needed to use like incredibly large numbers and uh the Roman numerals just like weren't getting him there. So he created his own number system to do it. And he came so close to like achieving the universality in the number system, but didn't that I, a lot of historians believe that he intentionally did not make it right universal. And I don't know, there's speculation, but like, is that a result of just not having the foresight of him to make it universal or did he do it intentionally? Um, but I, I really love this concept because I, I think it has applications to just about everything. Like, like if you're even for like file conventions on saving files on computers, like it's a pretty good idea to keep, keep it in your mind. Like, let's make this universal. Like, let me right. have a naming convention for files that lets me name things with numbers that start off with it or letters or capitals or, you know, and something that's not limited. Like sometimes like, if you capitalize certain the first letter of every word, it, it, you can kind of get into some trouble with your naming conventions because it looks funny when you have words that don't need to be capitalized. In. Right, or like you capitalize the O and of or the T. Or yeah, the T, right. It's like what's yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you just do a little bit of legwork in the beginning and set up some universal systems, especially like Excel spreadsheets, like whatever, uh, you're 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 creating a lot more potential for the tool that you're making. Right. And, and I, and this is why, you know, he has this example um, of doing arithmetic with Roman numerals and this idea that, that systems do work through people, that systems use people to do work. And when we create systems and then use the system, really it's, it's the system that's using us. And so he has the example of in Roman numerals, you know, the, the rule is that if you have a series of symbols, you have to reduce that symbol list into as small as number of symbols possible. And so in Roman numerals, the V is for five. And so technically would, would five vertical hash marks. That would also would be five. But in Roman numeral rules, those five hash marks have to be reduced to the V. And so if you do if you do an addition problem where you have three hash marks plus two equals to five, yeah. you then have to do another step where you reduce it to the V. And the idea is that really once you, you write out that system, and you do that process, it's the system actually doing the work through the person at that point, which I think is also an interesting idea as well, that we create systems that we then are ourselves become a part of. And so and that kind of gets into our conversation about memes one or two episodes ago, where we're talking about how ideas come into creation and how they, how they stick around. Our, our current arithmetic system is a system that lives inside of us that does work through us. You know, that's, that's what it ultimately yeah, is. Yeah. And, um, which I thought was interesting as well. And, you know, back, back to the idea of universality, it just, it, think of how much easier it is to be able to um, express an idea to somebody when you all agree on the, on the symbols to use. Think of how easy that is versus if you had to think of the symbols and then to explain not only the symbols that you're using, but then also the ideas that the, that the symbols are encoding. But that becomes much more difficult um, as your ideas grow over time. You know, if we had, you know, as if everything was, was pictographic, I mean, how many words are in, are in a dictionary? 
I don't know, 10,000 words or something like that. I mean, whatever the number is. Oh. Like, imagine if you had that many symbols you had to memorize. Every picture, I mean, that would be insane, right? So having a small set of words. And then also, in a way, and this probably isn't quite universal as well, but that there's probably a small set of words that we use to do the majority of our explaining. Like if you know what a circle and a triangle and a rectangle is, I can, ex I can explain a lot to you with those simple ideas. So in a way we can combine simple ideas into bigger ideas as well. That, that maybe is another kind of universality as well. That we, we understand simple ideas that we can then build up into more complicated ones as well. Yeah, another example I heard, I was listening like NPR the other day and they're talking about different COVID variants and how hmm. Um, they've developed a system of using like Greek letters to classify them now, as opposed to the country of origin. Okay. Because when they just use the country, it, it limited the universality because there's certain stigmas that go with country. There's like xenophobia that goes with it. Right. Um, but and also, using, I guess more than one can come from the same country. Like why? Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. But by using this new system, you can, you have more freedom to, uh, do your documentation and evaluation. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, this creating systems is one of the things that, in a sense, separates people from other animals. I mean, maybe that's not true entirely. Maybe some animals have simple systems in place, but nothing like people do. And um, I think oftentimes we don't think that systems are important because we don't really pay attention to them. But I mean, it's, it's, it's just as impressive a feat to organize a thousand people to do some task as it is to build a new car or a new engine. And it's just, it, and it's just as much thought, you know, problem solving, et cetera. Even though one lives on as a system and one lives on as like a, as like a tangible object, both require a fair amount of work. <laughs> Probably the people systems are maybe even harder. I'm almost definitely are harder to make than like an engine or something. And so, you know, and they oftentimes I think can go unnoticed because we're not paying attention to them. But, um, you know, a lot of work goes into that as well. Right. Well, Jim, do you got do you have uh, any closing remarks for chapter six or um no, I think I think that does it for chapter six. I like I said, I think on, on my first read through it was easy to not fully appreciate. And you are left wondering, you know, why is universality important? But I think on, on a second read through, when you realize that the whole purpose of the book is to get us to think in terms of 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 conjecture and criticism, um, it's very important to have tools that have reach that is in a sense unbounded. And, you know, probably the easiest one is the idea of the universal yep. number system that any, whether it's the atom or the galaxy or the, you know, the, the black hole, the electron, whatever it is, no matter how big or how small or how fast or whatever it is, our same number system can describe all of it. And our same computers can simulate all of it. And, um, you know, that makes yeah. the job of that much easier to do. So, which actually ties in directly the idea of computation and, you know, a universal computer uh, into chapter seven, artificial creativity. But before that, we have a special new segment on this episode. Uh, so we've, we've, of course, had our, for a while now, we've had our wonderful music reviews from our official R&R music correspondent. We're changing things up a little bit this week by adding in a new segment, which is a, a, a film review from our official R&R film correspondent. So Joe, when you have that review, uh, let's go to that segment. All right, super excited for this. So the movie under review today is The Kid Detective. Now what's it about? Abe Applebaum became a local celebrity solving petty crimes as a preteen. But the disappearance of his friend Gracie Gulliver proves too difficult for him to solve. Two decades later, he's still on the job. But with the rest of the town no longer taking him seriously until a naive high schooler hires him to solve her boyfriend's murder. Now, is it good? Is the movie good? Very. Writer-director Evan Morgan has crafted one of the best debut albums of the last few years. Morgan is adept behind the camera, particularly enhancing jokes visually. One sequence that sees Abe visit the local gang leader led to one of my biggest laughs of the film, despite almost no dialogue. But his writing is truly what sets his film apart. The mystery is well-constructed, 
with seemingly minor pieces of information building up to a final revelation that's neither too obvious nor takes a Sherlockian jump in logic to figure out. It's fun to rewatch to see how cleanly each clue is placed into the narrative. It's Morgan's ability to balance tone through and have a lead who can do the same that truly sets this film apart. There's a meta quality to, to Adam Brody's casting in the lead role. His breakthrough role of Seth Cohen on the OC remains the height of his career 14 years later. And he's excellent as a burnt out former child prodigy. His apple bomb is filled with self-loathing, not just for his own unrealized potential, but his failure to solve the disappearance of Gracie 19 years earlier, yet still has the confidence of someone who believes himself to be the smartest person in every room. He mines those qualities for humor and pathos in equal measure. This easily could have been a broad comedy where the deaths and disappearances don't matter, or a film that gives you a tonal whiplash as it tries to be both funny and poignant. But Morgan and Brody ensure that the humor and tragedy feel of one piece. Abe and the thing he gets up to over the course of the investigation are oftenly deeply funny, but Gracie's disappearance clearly still haunts him and the town as well. Well, while a scene where he visits the parents of the murdered boyfriend featuring the always talented Z Ma, the Chinese dad in everything from Rush Hour to Farewell to Milan, ensures his death matters to us. And even as the film mines the humor of a kid detective, a classmate getting more than he bargained for after asking to find out where his dad went one day, or the owner of an ice cream parlor having to keep the promise he made to a young Abe of free ice cream for life, it doesn't forget about what the burden of attempting to solve a town's biggest crime would do to someone at such a young age. The film is deeper than it needs to be and all the better for it. Grade, A minus. Other films to watch. For more great Adam Brody, you, you can watch Ready or Not. For more high school focused noir, Brick. And for more private eye hijinks, The Nice Guys. And that's the end of the review. And also, the, we wanted to point out too, and the reviewer mentioned this as well, that um, you can watch that movie on Stars, and Stars is currently offering a seven-day free trial. So be sure to check it out on Stars. And um, it sounds like a good movie. I plan on watching it. I've not seen it yet. I do. I have seen the movie Brick, which is a phenomenal movie. I highly yeah. recommend Brick as well if you like that high school noir kind of thing. Um, and so based on that movie recommendation. I look forward to watching this one as well. Yeah, uh, I look forward to downloading that Stars membership. And if Stars wants to reach out and be a sponsor of the show, they can reach us at rosesandrhetoric at gmail.com. Absolutely, they can. Absolutely, they can. Uh, see someone in the background. And, uh, and uh, I will just mention that um, this review really did not come from myself, nor did it come from Joe. Uh, I did write a movie review last week. But uh, this one, nor do the music reviews, really do not come from us in case anybody thinks that these are, you know, not really written by us. They uh, most certainly are not written by us. So yeah, no. thank our, we thank our reviewers for their input and um, look forward to sharing more movie reviews with you all in the future. Um, all right, Joe, that brings us to chapter number seven, artificial creativity. I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to ask you... A, a question that I do not know the answer to. And I, based on David Deutsch's book, I don't know that he knows the answer to either. Um, or, or maybe that's, that's not quite fair to say it. Let's just, how would you define creativity? How would you define what it means to be creative? <laughs> uh, that's a great question because that's essentially what this chapter breaks down to is that humans don't understand creativity. And if we did, we would be able to reproduce it. Right. Um, he did give a few hints at what creativity could be. Um, I know that he used humor as an example. Humor is something that can't really be created by computers. It's something that's that's native to humans and is stuck with humans. Um, and even I, then, only some. And even then, only some. So if I had to describe creativity, if I had to put some sort of definition between it, 
behind it. I would say that creativity is everything that we don't understand about the human mind. Uh, I like that. It feels like um, that, that, that it's like uh, how you define God, right? It's like by what God is not, you know, that would yeah. be the via negativa approach. Yeah. Um, interesting. Oh, and, by interesting. The, and by the way, uh, just yes. excuse, excuse my background. These Zoom backgrounds just keep getting more and more realistic. They get realistic. I mean, you can't even see the green screen. You can't even see the green screen. Um, <laughs> I like that. I, I I will not try to improve much on that definition, but I will say a, a characteristic of creativity seems to be uh, that it involves the discovery of a secret and that I think actually a joke is a good way to do that. If you think about what makes a joke funny, start by what makes a joke not funny. Typically, if you know the punchline before the joke is told, it tends to not be funny. There's a, there's a hint of surprise in every joke. And that surprise, that punchline is in some sense a secret. Um, people of the show know that I'm a big fan of Peter Thiel. I'm a big fan of Zero to One. And um, I spent some time this week trying to, you know, find a connection between this book and, and Zero to One. And I think that there are several. Um, but one important one is this idea of how valuable secrets are. Secrets are incredibly valuable, um, and creativity is very much the a, a process that humans engage into, in order to discover secrets. And um, I wanted to broaden that a little bit to the way that we talk about the truth, because I think that discovering the truth involves creativity as well. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking this week this idea that to only to, to have peaceful conversations between people that you don't agree with both sides have to agree to treat the truth as a secret. They're both trying to uncover together. At the moment, any team comes to the field thinking they already know beyond correction what the truth is, it's impossible to imagine that conversation going well. And so the idea that, right. that, that the truth is always a secret that we are always hunting after. And I think creativity is, is in a sense, that process that we go through in order to discover the truth and to recognize improvements upon the truth along the way. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a great take. Um, yeah, there's no point in going into a conversation with someone if you already know what you're gonna be thinking, right? And, and I like what you said there and what Peter Thiel said. Um, creativity is kind of still like a big mystery for us. It's a, it's a hard thing to pin down, a hard thing to describe. And I know that in this chapter, David Deutsch argues that our lack of understanding of creativity is essentially the reason why we can never have AI. Right. That, in that in, until we understand creativity, we won't really have AI. And I, I like yeah. The, yeah, the point that he makes, which is that we, we will know we understand creativity when we are able to program it. But that's yeah, exactly. really that's really the, the test for creativity is that if you and really the test for anything if you understand something you can have a computer do it mm -hmm. so until we have creativity we won't be able to until we understand creativity we won't be able to program a computer to do creative tasks which is right yeah. now what fundamentally separates people from machines machines are not yeah, any, any meaningful tasks um, right Right. I know he talked about the, the Turing test. Do you want to right. take a, a minute to explain what that is? And yeah, I think, I think the, the Turing test is, is a kind of, it's, it's become very much popular science and that is, it's, it's very vogue, very, very in vogue right now. Um, people are talking a lot about AI right now. And of course the result with the Turing test, this idea that in order to test the artificial intelligence of some machine, you essentially set it up so that you have a person talking to the computer and the whole goal is to have the computer fail the human into thinking that they're talking to a human. But that's what the Turing test basically is. And um, as David Deutsch points out, it's not really a great test because you could, you could conceivably create a machine that could fool the person by just having a really big, you know, vocabulary in, uh, or, you know, predefined answers. And it really, would never prove creativity uh, until you actually understand creativity. Right. You can't really know that you've created creativity, um, which is funny because 
you know, I, I don't want this to sound, you know, too uh, off the cuff, I guess, but humans make creative machines all the time. It's called having children. I mean, that's what a, that's what a, you know, a person is a, is a creative machine in some sort, right? And a so, moist robot, right? A moist robot. And so it's funny that, you know, there are 7 billion people in the world, all of which are creative, all of which are, you know, all equally human, of course. And yet we still don't, under, we still don't understand, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that it, 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 it's common. Creativity is common and yet not understood, which is a funny situation, I think. But um, yeah, everyone's got it regardless of their IQs. Right. Right. But nobody can outperform a computer. <laughs> right. Right. No, no computer has ever been creative. Every person is creative and um, we still don't understand it. And I do agree with him that I think there is a, 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 uh, a fundamental misunderstanding and creativity that prevents us from truly making AIG. That seems like a good mm-hmm. uh, premise to me. And, um, and then he goes on to explain too the, the, the notion of, 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 of quale or yes. qualia as we call, which is for people listening, that's kind of a fancy word for basically the, uh, the subjective nature of consciousness, your perceptions of consciousness that, and a word is, 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 is quale. And then the, the plural is qualia. I maybe I have that backwards, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, well, how is your blue different than my blue? How right. Or even blue different than mine. Even in just more basic terms, how do you experience the color blue? Right. Like I can tell you, I can take out a machine. If you're colorblind, he gives the example of being colorblind in the book. If you're, if you're colorblind to blue, I can tell you on paper, the, the hue measurement of blue. I can tell you that the sky is blue. I can tell you that water, you know, appears to be blue in the ocean. I can tell you a lot of things where blue is and what blue is like in terms of some kind of measurement or some kind of data. But until you actually experience blue, you wouldn't be able to imagine the color. And so again, the notion of the notion of a surprise or a secret that's there, that in, until you experience the qualia in question, you really can't even imagine it. You can't imagine blue until you've seen it. And that's true for many things as well. I think it's true for many people. And like, what would, what would four-dimensional space feel like? I have no idea because I've never seen it. I've never experienced it. So I, right. I, I don't know. You can't communicate that qualia with someone. Right. Um, I do want to talk about, so when you were talking about creativity and how AIs can never truly achieve true creativity, he did give the example of uh, evolutionary algorithm. Right. Which is, and I think he used the example of some sort of robot or something of that sorts and how uh, the algorithm, what it would do is it would just randomly change certain pieces of the robot itself and run simulation after simulation after simulation, kind of like resembling evolution, like have one gene just very slightly test the results. And then the theory is that over time you have a highly optimized machine at the end of the day. Um, I would, and I didn't fully understand uh, this part of it, but maybe you did, maybe you can just talk to why evolutionary algorithms are not the same as creativity and how they aren't necessarily the holy grail of uh, AI. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Let me, so I, I, I certainly have some gap in that thought process as well. Let me, let's start with one thing that he points out, which is that it was the person that created the artificial evolution generator in that system that was really the creative person. And mm-hmm. in, in a sense, what he's arguing is that it was the person that created, that made this system that then ran through its, its, its procedure and then after running through that procedure resulted in, in, in you know, let's say in, the, in this case, it was, you know, fitting a line or something like that, um, yeah. that the, the program or really in, in this case, I think what David Deutsch would call the creative output was the person that made that system. The programmer. Then, right. The programmer. And then the program running through the steps in the program at that point, wouldn't it be creative in the sense that it wasn't, it wasn't really creating anything as much as it was um, uncovering. I mean, it gets hard to describe with words, I guess, but once, once the programmer made the program and, and that problem in a sense, or that solution was already discovered, it just had to run through the process to get to it. So, um, so, 
so let me ask you this would regular evolution like darwinian evolution would that be a creative process yeah i mean i'm in, in in a way i am i am tempted to say no uh he he goes on to explain later on in that chapter what it would actually take for the program itself to be to be creative and so i guess you know taking that example into account maybe evolution would be would be creative i don't know that you can really say one thing is or isn't creative until you have an understanding of what creativity is which is which is what we don't have we don't have that you know, understood to the level of, of it being a thing that we can we can program and, and describe. And so I guess until you have that, um, it's hard to call one thing creative and one thing not creative. I mean, one of the things with creativity is that it's, it's, uh, it's unbounded in some sense. And so in that way, evolution would be more creative because it could evolve into anything. Whereas with a, with the computer program, it's always going to do the same thing. It's just going to run through that program until, you know, the answer comes out at the bottom. And so there's, there's, there, there's no way in which it grows beyond what it was made as. And so in that sense, whereas evolutionarily things evolve well beyond what they began as the bacteria becoming the person. And so in that sense, maybe evolution would be creative. And uh, even though the program wouldn't be, um, yeah. but I, 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 I agree with you. I think it's hard and until you really know what creativity is, it's hard to define what is and isn't creative um yeah. well, well i guess does it exist outside of humans so the argument there is that would be question. yes or well that, that that it could exist outside of humans maybe it doesn't now um but then well, we would have exist. to understand it first in order well, to recreate it to recreate it but to say that it is possible to recreate it from david deutsch's argument would be that because our brains exist in the universe we should be able to replicate whatever yeah. takes place in our brain somewhere else. And so from All that problems sense, are soluble, right? right. Including understanding creativity. So because we have the ability to make universal simulators, we should have the ability to make brains, which should be creative the way that our brains currently are. And so to the first question, could creativity exist outside of humans? Yes. Does it right now? Seemingly not. You know, we're not counting for like if there's an alien species somewhere else. We're talking about on the planet that we haven't yet made a machine that is creative, um, even though in theory we should be able to. And the question of how do you make a creative machine is very much the same question of what is creativity. Once you know the question, or once you know the answer to one question, you know the answer to the other one as well. In order to understand it, in order if you understand it, you'd be able to program it. Sure. So, but I, I agree with you. I, it's um. You know what would it take and i don't remember the part of the book well enough i don't want to read it on 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 air but you know he does explain from his argument what it would take for a program to be creative versus yeah, yeah. the program before and so in that sense i would say evolution in a sense is creative whereas the program of the currently artificial evolution would not be creative and it's based on differences this is basically the worst answer on, on a show ever given it's not an easy question but so I, I would say that evolution is creative. Artificial evolution is not creative. People are creative. And when we understand creativity, we'll be able to make creative machines. That would be how I would I agree answer the question. That. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. And so, and I guess, you know, the, the, what, what makes evolution creative observably is that it appears to be unbounded, that it, it's unbounded. Yeah. Um, so. Good. All, all, uh, all easy questions today on the show. <laughs> no, like I said, I think, I think that these are really important chapters. And I, I, what I like most about this book so far is that it gives a secular answer to the question of what makes people important. Mm-hmm. It gives that answer. What is the answer? Because people are in a, in a class of things that are universal explainers. That is a unique class that people are in. Other things are not in. We are not just fish. We are not just bacteria. We're not just whatever. We are this thing that by our nature has unlimited potential moving forward. And I think that A is a good answer. 
And I think one that when you hear seems in some sense kind of obvious because answer the question, why are people different than other animals? And we all we all have a vague kind of answer to that of yeah, well, a great we question. Have, yeah, it's a great question. And we all kind of have a very intuitive understanding of what makes us different, hard to put in words. And then David Deutsch puts it in words very, very simply. Universal explainers, therefore, you know, universal um, instructors can understand anything, therefore we can make anything. No other species on earth is, has that quality to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm writing this down. But that's, and that's what I love about this book is it starts to get you to ask those type of questions and starts to get you thinking of them. And it, it just shores up a lot of, a lot of matters that had ambiguity before. Like you said, like what makes human special, what, what is achievable, what isn't achievable. It gives you a, a framework to start working from a foundation. Right. And a framework that is, as people are listening to this show, they're hearing, and that one answer, I changed my mind as I was giving the answer. I mean, this this book has a lot of detail and knowledge in it that is hard to, can, to digest in one and go. I'm not going to pretend to understand this book after one read through. That would be stupid of me to do so, and nor, nor have I. Um, that makes this book valuable as well, that these are ideas that are hard, that are challenging, but that are also important. And... Um, you know, again, I would just encourage people to go out and read the book because I think this book, again, I said this last time too, but it gives us a big tent framework for a lot of different ideas to work together. And quite frankly, I don't know of another big tent right now that would serve that purpose. But I think this is such a book or such a set of ideas that can form that big tent. All problems are, problems are inevitable. All problems are soluble. Hard are you either one of those things? Hard to find a better place with which to agree and then to move from. Yeah. You know, I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I know I know you got some things to do tonight, Jim. I know that uh, we're running a little bit of a late Saturday night show today. Um, what what closing remarks do you have on these chapters? Or No, I think... I think um, I like the examples you gave today's episode. I think that'll help our, our listeners quite a bit. I hope that we encourage them to go out and buy this book. Um, we're going to next week will be a really fun series of chapters and, and in particular, the chapter on optimism that we'll get to next week as well. So if you enjoyed this episode, check out our earlier ones on the preceding chapters and then check out our episode next week or the chapter on, on optimism and a couple of other, other chapters as well. Um, but uh, enjoying this book, enjoying the, the second read through. And uh, if you enjoyed it as well, come back and see us all next week. Very good, Joe. Well, I'm going to give out, as always, our email address, uh, or not our email address, LOL, our website address. Or stars. <laughs> stars needs it. Yeah, stars needs it. So we're on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter at roses underscore rhetoric. We're also on Instagram, same handle as well. Follow Joe at jose4 underscore Squarevo. He's on Twitter and Instagram as well. And also our website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. And we'll see you all next week for Optimism. <laughs>